find what has just been summarized in Psalm 105, verse 9, in Exodus chapter 1. We'll read that together. It's the text of the message this morning. Exodus chapter 1, you can find on page 45, Bible in the pew in front of you. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whom was named Shiphrah, and the other Puah. When you serve as midwife, midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, sometimes when we look around at all that is happening in the world around us, we can find it difficult to see the power and the might of the Lord God. The decline of morality and society and increasing hostility against the Christian church all over the world can make us very concerned. The very fact that we have to discuss whether or not we will obey the laws of the land is a clear indication of how much our world has changed even in the last 70 years. When we read the first chapters of Exodus, it's striking that there's no mention of God responding to defend the Israelites when the Egyptians increased their bitter oppression until late in the second chapter of the book. He appears to be silent as the political climate in the land changed, 
as the freedom of the Israelites was taken away and they were forced into bitter lives of hard service. And as the fear of the Egyptians around them turned to increasing violence against them. The only mention of God in the first chapter is when the Holy Spirit reveals to us that the midwives feared God and that God supported them. Verses 17 to 21. In this way, God reminds us that he is supporting the growth of the people of God through the birth of children. That's the main point, the theme of chapter 1. And this theme is highlighted by its repetition. If you look at your chapter, you can see that it, this growth is mentioned in verse 7, again in verse 9, verse 12, and verse 20. And every time that this theme is mentioned, many different words are used to describe the growth. So we read of being fruitful, increased, or the Hebrew even says swarmed. You use the word multiplied, grew strong, filled the land, spread abroad. It's very clearly the emphasis of this first chapter. And even more so as each time these words are mentioned, the Lord uses adjectives that, that describe this growth, that it increased greatly or very, very much. The people grew exceedingly strong. It was, they were very strong, we read. Psalm 105, verse 24, referring to this passage again, highlights that God made them grow very strong. We see that the message of our text is very clearly emphasized on this growth that God gave to the church through children in the most harsh and unlikely conditions. And I preached to you this gospel under the theme, no one can prevent the Lord from building his church through children. We'll see why the new king of Israel attacked the children, and secondly, why those who fear God protect the children. If we just begin our explanation of God's revelation by starting right here in Exodus chapter 1, we would think that the biggest problem that was facing the people of God was the coronation of just another fallen king. Although his name is not mentioned, most scholars agree that this is the king who took power after driving out the foreign Asiatic Hiskos dynasty that had been reigning in the time of Joseph. It's likely that this new king was then riding on the waves of surging nationalism as he promised to make Egypt great again by getting rid of all foreign involvement. He did not recognize the treaties that had been made with Joseph the foreigner, and he used a strategy of fear-mongering to breed racism and make himself look like a national hero. There is really nothing new under the sun. He instilled fear in the, in the hearts of the Egyptians by stating that the people of Israel had grown more numerous and stronger than the Egyptians were, verse 9. And from there, he didn't describe the facts about what was happening, but he spoke about what could happen if the growth of the Israelite nations was not immediately stopped. Look at how he created a hypothetical emergency when he called the Egyptians to shrewd action in verse 10, lest the people of God multiply, based on the mere possibility that if a war broke out, they would join their enemies. 
The king of Egypt warned his fellow Egyptians that if they kept growing, the Israelites would escape from the land, which in the context probably means that they, they, had the, they would overflow from Goshen and go up in the rest of the land in a rebellious manner. The king was focusing, zeroing in his attack on the miraculous growth that the Lord had given to the sons of Jacob, and he used it to justify the marginalization, the separation, and the oppression of the chosen people of God. He tried to diminish their numbers by afflicting them with the heavy burdens of building the store cities Pithom and Ramses, which would not only keep these men away from their homes and families, but would also wear them out and cause many to die young. Strategy of population control. But nothing that Pharaoh could do could prevent the Lord from continuing his plan and giving growth to his people. Our passage emphasizes that even as it, as it moves forward. When the Israelites continued to multiply, as we read in verse 12, and they also spread about more, the rest of the Egyptians were then brought into the fear narrative, and they began to dread the people of God. They could see the sovereign power of God himself at work in this growth, but rather than submit to God, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their, made their lives bitter with hard service. And we read in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. That's verses 13 and 14. Well, this slavery would serve as an example for all time about what life is like outside the kingdom of heaven, outside the grace of God. Throughout history, the people of God would compare the sinful desires of, of the flesh to the slave masters in Egypt as they learned to cry out to God for deliverance. Even today, every Sunday, we think of the house of slavery in Egypt. Every time that we hear the Ten Commandments, in order that we might understand the background of the deliverance from sin that the Lord has obtained for us through Jesus Christ. Well, after trying to wipe out the people through this slavery, the Egyptians began a program of attacking the male children directly. Israel would have trouble forming an army without any men and would be powerless to prevent their families from being taken as, prevent their female children from being taken as wives for the Egyptians. And as the Egyptians were working hard to remove the future warriors and to assimilate the rest, they could see that Israel was in great danger of being destroyed as a nation. It makes us ask, why was this new king of Egypt so bent on destroying Israel as a nation? On the face of it, just reading Exodus, starting our explanation from this chapter, it appears that the king was just motivated by political considerations. He was trying, maybe he even said it, trying to protect the national interests. But there is more to the story than what we just read in Exodus. The Lord ensures that we see this 
connection by beginning this second book with the word and. And although it's not translated very often, the book of Exodus begins with a consonant that is used to directly connect this second book of the Bible to the, Bible, the book that comes before it, Genesis. And when we compare Genesis 46 to Exodus 1, verses 1 to 6, it becomes clear that we must see this book of Exodus as a continuation of the history of the work of God through the generations of Adam and Seth and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The promise of the offspring of the serpent living in enmity with the offspring of the woman that we read in Genesis 3 verse 15 that was the display text as we walked into church today. That verse stands directly behind our text. Although the Egyptians may have thought that this miraculous growth that they were seeing was, was just a local, political, historical situation, the devil knew that God had promised to bring a savior from the line of the woman who would crush his head, who would destroy him forever. And in a desperate attempt to foil God's plans, the devil was working uh, tirelessly to prevent the growth of the church through children, to make it impossible for the sons of Israel to remain distinct from the world. Like King Herod in the New Testament, who killed all the, the boys two years and younger in Bethlehem in order to prevent the birth of God's anointed king so many years later. The new king of Egypt we see is really nothing more than a slave of the evil one who was being used by God to hinder his work of salvation. We can see the devil's handiwork in the nationalism, in the racism, in the fear-mongering, in the shameful cruelty of this king of Egypt. And so, brothers and sisters, the battle being revealed in our text is really a battle between the Lord, who is working to bring salvation to a condemned and cursed world, and his enemies, who are blinded by their selfishness and their hatred of the coming Messiah, who would punish them eternally. Behind our text, we see the endless, the timeless battle, battle that we continue to see today. And every Christian must understand this basic antithesis, this basic enmity, this basic battle, because it stands not only behind the entire Old Testament and every explanation of the history of Israel, but also because it explains the battle that we are in today. And Revelation 12 makes that clear. Since God was using families to bring salvation to the world, Families would be, always be the center of the most intense spiritual attacks. And this knowledge that we have as Christians also gives us a sense of the urgency and the importance of Christian education in, in, in the home and, and in the schools. It gives us a sense of the urgency of the very things that we do every day as we sit in our homes and as we work together as a community. For those who fear God are called upon to protect the children. If we look back to Exodus 1, we can see that our text tells of many people who did not cooperate with the devil's attack on the work of God. 
In the first place, we can think of the, the couples who persisted in having children in spite of all the government's strong recommendations against it. In the second place, as the chapter highlights so dramatically, we can think of the midwives who did not obey Pharaoh but let the male children live. And by including both of these groups, the Lord shows that the responsibility for children in the church does not just fall on those who have children of their own, but also on the unmarried and, and the single and those to whom God has not given children. We read that the midwives escaped punishment by their words, and the God they feared dealt kindly with them, for they had done for what for what they had done, because they showed by their courage that they understood what God was doing. Now there are many questions about the details and the ethics of the midwives' actions and how we should apply this revelation in our situations today, but due to time constraints and even a specific request of an elder not to, to go too long, we'll have to wait with that to another week. We'll look at that more closely next week. But today, we need to understand why the people who feared God were so determined to have and to protect these children. Why were they so persistent? Why were male children so important to them that they were willing to risk life and limb for them? When we think about how we would have reacted in the same situation as the Israelites, we can see how we ourselves might have been, might have been tempted by a superficial understanding of the world, just looking at the king and not the, the devil behind it, to follow the instincts of human nature, to take the path of least resistance. Many couples also today believe that they must ensure that they have a safe and a comfortable environment before it's responsible to have children. I think we would have found it very difficult to continue having children if it just meant that they would be born to a hard life of poverty and oppression. Don't underestimate the bitterness of the life of the Israelites at that time. We may have even justified our decision not to have children by saying that it was irresponsible to have children in a time of slavery and then maybe even made couples feel guilty for their intimacy and, and critical of any children that they might bear which would just make the government more oppressive. Think about how the government pressure to stop having children would impact the discussions among the people of God. Were there some who used human logic to argue in favor of stopping government oppression by making local rules to forbid having more children? Well, on the face of it, just thinking in a very human and a worldly way, it would seem like a simple solution. When we read our text in the context, however, we will see that those who did keep having children were not simply motivated by marital love or plagued by a lack of self-control. They also were not simply motivated by the emotional love for holding cute little babies and raising young people up into adulthood. 
those without their own children, those who are involved in, in the responsibility by protecting the children like the midwives, they were not just concerned about the cruel horror of taking the life of baby boys. If that were the case, and they should have never had children, as many abortionists argue. And there's much more at play in our text here than the strong emotions reacting against a king who is clearly disobeying God in the use of his authority. Although all these feelings and these principles and these emotions must have been a part of the regular discussions of the life of the Israelites, the most important driving force in their decision to have and to protect children was their faith in the promises of God, and their hope in the coming Messiah. Why did they keep having children? The answer is because of Jesus Christ. And once again, this only becomes clear when we read our text in the light of all that God had already revealed to us in the book before. If you want to know why those who fear God protect the children, you can turn in your Bibles to the first words of the Lord, to the man and woman he created in Genesis 1 verse 28, when he told them, be fruitful, when he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And compare those three words with Exodus 1 verse 7, where they come back again, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. And they multiplied. And although this mandate is clearly not a direct person for every person in the church because God didn't give marriage and or children to every person, the couples among the people of Israel who were able kept having children because this was part of the mandate that God had given to his church already in the perfection of creation. And the people of God didn't stop having and protecting these children when oppression and slavery came because the Lord God did not remove the mandate after the fall into sin. But you can read in Genesis 3 verse 16, he just said it would be more difficult. The ongoing and repeated command throughout the book of Genesis to be fruitful, you can see it in Genesis 9, verses 1 and 7, and then 35, verse 11. That ongoing command is closely connected to the Messiah who was promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. For the Lord had made it clear that he would bring salvation to the earth. And from his church, through families, there would be a Savior. And inherent in the promise of enmity in Genesis 3 verse 15 was the command to remain distinct from the other nations. Not to intermarry with other peoples nor to adopt their religious practices and worldview. If the people of God only had daughters born to them in the land of Egypt, the names of the families could easily be erased as Egyptian men took these women into their own homes under their authority and under their religion. And the danger of erasing this distinction that must have also been a, a major part of the discussion of the Israelites is directly connected to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. As they talked about this danger, they would have thought of the Lord's promise to bless, that the people might be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord promises that the people of Israel would become a great nation in their own land, 
and through them all the nations in the world would be blessed. Those who feared God among the people of Israel understood that their love for their neighbor compelled them to remain distinct from the world as God's holy people and to care about the well-being and the growth of the church in the future generations. Although submission to God's plan, although obedience was difficult, it made life difficult, maybe it was the most difficult thing they had to do, there was no question that God was working through believers and their children as he showed his saving love to the world. And finally, the ongoing faithfulness of the people of God in having children was also connected to the promise to rescue them from Egypt. You can open your Bible, you can read about that in Genesis 15, verses 16, uh, 13 to 16. The people of Israel would have known the promise that Stephen also repeats that there would be a time of affliction, 400 years in a foreign land, but after that they would return to the promised land in the fourth generation. And in this context, we can understand why that genealogy that we read in Exodus 1, verse 1 to 6, that list of names that repeats what Genesis 46 says, it's such a declaration of God's triumph. God said, I will be with you in the, in the land of slavery, and then he tells us that he was with us by declaring the genealogy. In spite of the unfaithfulness of many of the sons of Jacob, in spite of their dance with the danger of intermingling with the surrounding nations, in spite of their disregard for the promise of a coming Messiah, there was a unified church of Jacob's 12 sons and their children and grandchildren in Egypt. The genealogy at the beginning of Egypt served as a reminder to the Israelites of the importance of being faithful to the Lord in having children themselves. God was establishing the people of Israel as one holy nation in enmity with the world in order to bring deliverance to, through them to the world just as he had promised to Adam and Eve. The Lord was working to make things ready for the return to the promised land in anticipation of the birth of the Son of God. And it was this hope, this this underlying reality behind everything that they were seeing and experiencing that encouraged God's people to be faithful in their mandate. Now as we look at this text with our New Testament eyes after the birth of the Son of God, we may wonder if God is commanding us to have children with the same urgency. Unlike the people of Israel, we aren't praying that we may have that male child who is the promised Messiah of Genesis 3, verse 15. We praise the Lord today that the Son of God has already come to crush the head of the serpent. We know how God's plan of deliverance unfolded in the past through, through the family lines of believers and their children. We can connect Jesus Christ directly to the faithful Israelites who kept having children. They did what God wanted them to do so that the Savior could be born. Do we as Christians still need to devote so much attention to children? Well, once again, Genesis makes the answer to these questions clear. 
For it shows us that God's command to be fruitful and increase and multiply is a part of the original creation mandate. It comes before his promise to use families to bring the Savior into the world. It came before the fall into sin. Even after the Savior has come, the original purpose of of having children of, of growth through children as a responsibility for the church, it remains also today. We can know that the Lord is blessing believers with children so that all those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world might experience the blessing of peace and fellowship with him forever. We can see the big plan of the Lord continuing. And the gospel message is that there are more names to be added to the genealogies of the kingdom of God under King Jesus Christ. And although those who become members of the church through birth or conversion to the faith may face oppression, we may face anti-Christian persecution, and we may face hatred even for a while, this is not the end of the story for the assembly of God's elect. Believers and their children are born to the hope of eternal life. And no threat from the most cruel dictator will ever cause us to give up that hope, to stop living according to the mandate that we have received when God created the world. And we know that it is in God's providence, in God's power alone to give growth, to to grant children, to call us specifically to this task. As God's people, whether we are young or old, or single or married, parents or childless, we are all called to be a part of this work of God, because it is a work of God that we are sharing in. Whether we are preparing ourselves to be married one day and in the, in the feeling the call of, of this responsibility, whether we are already changing diapers, whether we are babysitting for fellow church members, guiding teenagers, whether they are our own or, or the teenagers of other families, whether we are contributing to Christian education, we see the underlying battle at place. We see our place in it. And we can know that this is God's work. And it is glorious. And it is wonderful. And knowing that the devil and his forces will continue to attack the future generations of the church, Exodus chapter 1 urges us also to be deliberately focused on our responsibilities. To be courageous. To be ready for battle. It looks so innocent and cute and we talk about families and we enjoy families. We need to understand what's at stake here. Whether or not the Lord has given us children of our own, let us work together as God's covenant people to raise the children of the church in faith and in confidence, not only for today, but also looking to coming generations. And as we fight in this spiritual battle together, we thank the Lord for the gospel message of Exodus 1, that he is on our side, that he is with us, and no one can prevent him from fulfilling his purposes through us. 
even though it's not always easy to see the power of God in a world that is so hostile, we know that Jesus Christ is King. He has come. And he is continuing to gather and defend and preserve his church until he comes again. Amen.